Well, it's been fun to be with the conference this weekend and uh, to be able to stand in this uh, sacred piece of real estate where, where Brian shepherds you each week is a, certainly a privilege. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the table of contents. Table of contents, page one. And the reason is we're going to go to a book of the Bible that's not altogether familiar to everyone and I want to find the page number so that we can all go there with dignity, Okay. <laughs> Um, look at uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Do you see the book of Lamentations? See the book of Lamentations? See which page that is? Now let's all go there together. Okay, wasn't that easy? Um, if you have tabs in your Bible, you're saying, no, I could have been there a lot faster. Lamentations chapter 3. Um, I hope it's not that place in your Bible, if you have a newer Bible where the pages are all stuck together, you know. Not a lot of people do a lot of study in Lamentations chapter 3, and yet, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness We Sing comes right out of Lamentations 3. It is an amazing book. Before we turn there, uh, our attention there though, I want to tell you a little brief biography of one of my historical heroes. His name was Christopher Love. He was a Welshman and a Puritan preacher in the 17th century, and at, 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 at age 33... He was just coming into the prime of his preaching ministry and his shepherding ministry there in London. And he was accused by the English government of high treason because he preached Christ over the primacy of the Church of England. He was arrested in May of 1651, endured what can only be called a kangaroo court, found guilty and scheduled for execution by beheading July 15th, 1651. By the way, appeals would postpone this another six weeks. Church of England didn't look kindly on men who preached Jesus Christ as the focus of the pulpit rather than the political agenda of the Church of England at the time. Consequently, for most of the non-conformists, we know them as the Puritans, incarceration, martyrdom, suffering was almost always ahead of them. During his arrest, he turned to his wife and quoting Peter just said, this is no strange thing. I've expected this. I love Christopher Love for so many reasons. His life and example are amazing to me. When he was executed, and he was beheaded on Tower Hill just outside of the, um, the walls of the London Tower, he was given an opportunity to say something to the audience. They were expecting him to talk for two or three minutes, and he preached an hour-long sermon such that the executioner had to say, Mr. Love, it is your time. During that sermon, he said so many things. I just want to give you a couple of quotes from that sermon, from the scaffold. He said, this scaffold is the best pulpit that I ever preached in. In my church pulpit, God, through his grace, made me an instrument to bring others to heaven. But in this pulpit, the scaffold, he will bring me to heaven. It's quite a perspective. And then he says right before he ends. I bless my God that a high court and a long sword and a bloody scaffold have not made me in the last to alter my principles or alter my conscience. What a man. How do you make sense of this kind of story where a man gives his life to the Lord, gives his life to the gospel only in the end to be beheaded and executed? How do you make sense of that? Let me ask you this. How do you make sense of your trials? How do you make sense of trouble? How do you make sense of difficulty that comes into your life? Coming to Christ does not guarantee freedom and exemption from trouble, does it? Oftentimes it turns the volume up and the intensity up. Theologians call the problem of evil theodicy, not theology, theodicy. It's looking at a good God 
and the problem of evil in the world, especially as it relates to Christian suffering, and says, how do we make sense of this? There are three propositions theologically that they work through. And the, the logicians tell us that you can have two of these three, but you can't have all three. Here's the propositions. God is good, okay? God is all powerful, he's sovereign, and evil exists. Now, the, the, um, the secular theologians, if there's such a thing, would tell us if God is good, then he must not be all powerful. That's why evil exists. And that makes logical sense. Or others would say, no, no, God is all powerful, but he's not good. That's why evil exists. And then you have some Christian scientists who say, he's good, he's all powerful, but evil does not exist. Don't you want to just punch those guys in the nose and say, then what was that? (laughs) Okay, I don't really want to punch them up. (laughs) The biblical position though is that God is good. God is all-powerful and sovereign and evil exists in a mysterious providence that we can see glimpses of understanding in this time, but probably not till heaven. Don't you like what C.S. Lewis says about going to heaven? He says, the first two words out of every Christian's mouth when they get to heaven will be, of course. It'll make sense then. Yes, evil and tragedy and suffering exist. Yes, God is infinite in goodness and power. Yes, God is almighty in sovereignty. Now, the reason I bring that up is that's where we find ourselves thinking about in the middle of the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is is a poetical depiction of the horrific atrocities that beheld, beheld, uh, uh, fell on the inhabitants of Jerusalem as Babylon came and wiped them out. It was tragic time for these people. 587, uh, uh, Babylon's army invades, kidnaps um, the best of Israel's elite young people, destroys the temple. And Lamentations is perhaps the saddest book in the Bible. Get this, for 40 years, four decades, for 40 years, Jeremiah has preached faithfully. Now get this, without one convert. I mean, just put yourself in his Birkenstocks for a second. He has preached for four decades, faithfully, not one person has turned. I mean, I always think of Jeremiah and Jonah. Jonah didn't even want to go to Nineveh. You know, he goes the opposite way, thrown overboard, fish gets sick of him, throws him up on the, on the shore. He goes back to Nineveh. And this is Jonah's message. Well, I don't guess you guys want to repent, do you? And a half a million people get saved. He doesn't like that. Goes up on a hill. Have you ever read the end of Jonah? I mean, he goes up on a hill and he's pouting about God saving these people and he's sitting under some shade and a caterpillar comes and eats the shade and then you turn the page and the book's over. (laughs) And you keep wanting to say, did someone take a page out of my Bible? That's it? Shows you that God's involved in it. God measures success by faithfulness, not by numbers. Jeremiah was a blazing success of faithfulness. He preaches 40 years, not any converts. Now Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed the city. He goes up probably on the Mount of Olives, looks across the city to the Temple Mount and pens these poems, these five poems as a a funeral dirge of a once proud city. You know, a lesser man would have said, I told you so. I kept telling you, if you don't obey God, if you don't come back to God, this is gonna happen. Instead of doing that, he weeps, he laments. That's what this book is. 
about the people's failure to return to God. The city's burned, pillaged, brought to ruins, and he composes five poems, which is the book of Lamentations. And when you read it, you find the tender side of the fiery prophet. Jeremiah was the warning that looked ahead. The book of Jeremiah, Lamentations, is the mourning that looks back. Lamentations is interesting to me because it's the most emotionally autobiographical book in the prophets. We find out more about Jeremiah in his own heart here than perhaps anywhere. Now look at chapter 3. We need to, we need to um, get to a certain section in that, but I want you to read with me. I'm going to follow, follow along as I read the first part of this chapter. This is the middle poem of the five poems. And just to give you a little structure in how the Hebrew works, there, the, there, are, there are two and a half poems that build to three questions and two and a half poems that fall after three questions. Let's just read this part of the poem up to these questions. Jeremiah, watching the city burn, says this, I'm the man who's seen seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He's driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me, he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. Reminds me of Daniel. Daniel in Daniel 9, when, this, when, he, decides, when, when he discerns that the people are time to, to go back to Israel, he, he personalizes the sin. Jeremiah doesn't say, oh, those wicked rebels. He, he says, this is me. I'm be, I am a part of this judgment as well. He's caused my flesh and my skin to waste away, broken my bones, besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places, he's made me dwell like those who've long been dead. He's walled me in so that I cannot go out. He's made my chain heavy. And even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He's turned aside my ways and torn me into pieces. He's made me desolate. Verse 12, it's amazing. Verse 12, God, he has bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. You ever felt that way? You ever just wanted to turn to God and say, do you remember I'm on your team? Tragedy, suffering, sickness, death, conflict. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. I've become a laughing stock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day long. We find out from reading Jeremiah, kids would walk by the, the prophet on the side of the street preaching about the coming judgment and they would make little songs up and mock him. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's covered, made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness. You ever felt like that? I've forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Now, Jeremiah is brutally honest with how he feels about his own difficulty. And I think there's, there's a tremendous value in us being honest about those times in our lives when we're like that as well. But then he does something that we need to learn to do ourselves. He learns to preach, ready for this? To his heart. He learns to preach to himself. His mind has now set up a pulpit and his heart is now the audience. Remember my affliction and my wondering and the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul's remembrance bowed down within me. This I recall to mine. Therefore I have hope. What is that? 
You're recalling your bitterness and you have hope. Why in the world would you have hope, Jeremiah? In this hopeless situation, you're watching your friends killed. Here's why, verse 22. Because the Lord's loving kindnesses, I love that the Hebrew word is plural. The loving kindnesses, his graces, his mercies, his inclinations to be good and not bad. They never cease. His compassions, they never fail. In fact, they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now he turns from preaching to himself to prayer. See the shift in person? Now he's talking to God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope where? In him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him, it is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. He sees that there's an end to this. Salvation will come. Even if it's through his death, he'll come to to the place where he is enjoying God. It's good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him stand alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach for the Lord will not reject forever. For, I love this, if God, if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man of his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. Now we come to three questions that Jeremiah asks. And this is the heart of our time. If you want to take notes, if you're following an outline, our outline is going to follow along these three simple questions. Now, I got to tell you before we start that these questions are really not questions, they're statements. And every husband understands this, okay? My wife often asks me questions. They're not questions, they are not questions. Just a few weeks ago, honey, are you really going to wear that tie with that coat? That wasn't a question. (laughs) Sweetheart, are you going to take the trash out tonight? That's not a question. They're statements. And in these questions that Jeremiah asks, the question involves the answer. The question is a statement, a hypothetical consideration that accents a theological truth. If you want to follow along, we're going to find three theological reminders when facing a difficulty. This is for the Christian who loves Christ, who knows God, who can see theological implications in their difficulty. Three theological reminders when facing difficulty. You know, we were singing uh, uh, last week in my, in my church this song, and I, I was thinking about this passage in preparation for this coming week. We're singing, it is well with my soul. That one line, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. What a statement. Whatever my lot, whatever happens, I can say it is well with my soul. Can you say that? The answer is only if you have these theological pillars established in your heart. The first theological reminder when facing a difficulty is this. God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over people. Jeremiah asks this question in verse 37. Who, there's the people, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? The Babylonians had said they would come and destroy it. They had announced it. They had said it. They said, Jerusalem is under our authority. We will come and besiege it. They had spoken and that's exactly what they had done. 
Why did it happen though? Was it because they said they would do it? Jeremiah takes a contrary opinion to that. Men are only tools in the great God's hand that he picks up and sets down at his own disposal. And Babylon was that very tool here to bring judgment and ultimately restoration to Judah, to the nation of Israel. God is not some idle or foreign or forgetful deity sitting back comfortably in heaven, leading an inactive life, giving the world up to chance, letting things happen, even doing things himself at random. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? Whispering, the Babylonians had. He says, no, no, unless the Lord has commanded it. Notice the direction of this verse is toward words and actions of people. No one can can act without God's sovereign approval. No one, think about this, no one can say anything, can act anyway, unless God has approved it. That changes your perspective on your conflicts, doesn't it? That changes your perspective about your boss. That changes your perspective about your teacher, your coach, your neighbor. Can I say it? Sometimes the people in the church who say things, God has never elbowed the angels and said, whoops, did you see that? Does this mean that God is in any way responsible for evil? No, 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 not at all. When sin is involved, he uses it for his glory and our benefit, but he's never responsible for evil. Even Joseph said, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50 verse 20. How do you view the actions of others? Are you keenly aware that they are being used specifically by God in their words and actions in your life? The next time someone says something that really upsets you, that digs at you, you can step back and say, who is there who speaks? And it even makes it happen and comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. God has never forgotten Romans 8, 28, we know that God does what? What's the word? God causes all things. Do you, do you know what all means? It's a big giant Greek word. You know what all means? All. God causes all things to work together for good. But there's a caveat to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Only those who know and have embraced the gospel and know Jesus Christ can have this perspective and the confidence that God is for them and not against them. No one can do or say anything to you that God does not ordain and allow and that should bring hope and not despair. There's a second theological reminder. God is sovereign not just over people but over circumstances. He's sovereign over circumstances. Jeremiah asks a second question in verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill, it's an interesting Hebrew word, ill, evil, calamity go forth? The Puritans said, God is too wise to err and too good to be unkind. We have to make a choice this morning. Either we believe in a God who is in absolute, complete control over his universe or we have a God who has problems and has limitations. The Bible is clear that God is sovereign. What does sovereignty mean? It means that God's care and control over his creation is for his glory and the good of his people. He's always in control. He's even control of the prince of the power of the air. Read Job. Satan can't act without God's permission. Psalm 135 verse six. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. 
Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God does whatever he pleases? I remember I was reading, I was an 18-year-old reading um, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Highly recommend that book. Blew my mind. I kept turning pages and thinking, why have I not known about this God uh, I didn't know I, was, I had grown up in a southern liberal, um, a liberal southern Baptist church and just didn't know. I just kept reading, wow, what a God, what a God, what a God. Well, I read this part about God's sovereignty, that he's in control of everything. And it just freaked me out, especially as a, as a, a, a Baptist who, you know, the word sovereignty was a bad word. And I'm like, God's okay, if he's in control, and it freaked me out. And I remember I just read that chapter and, and I went out to the mailbox for my mom to get the mail. And I was walking out to the mailbox thinking, God knows I'm gonna go, so I stopped. But he probably knew I was going to stop, so I went. Well, he probably knew I was going to go and stop, so I went again. And it took me a, an hour to get to the mailbox. It's like, because I was trying to, does he, well, he probably knew that the contingency, it, it'll blow your mind. It will, I mean, it's like the, the wicked witch of the West. You know, I'm melting under the weight of that amazing thought that God is in control over everything. Jesus said, not even a bird can die without God's sovereign control. He's called the ruler of all things in 1 Chronicles 29, 12. The blessed and only ruler, 1 Timothy 6, 15. He's such a sovereign ruler that he actually has, are you ready for this? The hairs of our head, not counted, but numbered. Numbered. In the shower this morning, there went 487. He's got them numbered. He knows what, now that's easier for some of you, for God, than others. He is sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar came to grips with that. Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God. Who's able to straighten what he's bent? Know this though. God's truth is not dependent on our personal experience. Just because we don't feel like God is in control doesn't mean he's taken his hands off the steering wheel, does it? Sometimes it's more difficult to trust God than it is to obey God. Do this, don't do that, okay. Trust when you don't know why, that's much harder. You get the news from the doctor about yourself or a loved one. And the, the wonderful reminder in this text is no circumstance is outside of God's sovereign control our shock is not matched by God's shock. He doesn't say, oh, I didn't know that. God is good and God is sovereign. You can be sure of this. God will never pursue his glory and our good at our expense. I think most times we're given difficulty in this world, just as Jeremiah was, to get us to the point to gain perspective so that we would realize that this is not it. Isn't, this world isn't it. Heaven is it. C.S. Lewis calls our greatest problem in this world, not the problem of evil, not the problem of trials he says our greatest problem is the problem of pleasure he's got a whole essay on this where he says our problem is when we're experiencing pleasure and things are going well we don't come to the place where we seek God like 
when things are not like that. So he actually says at the end of that essay, we should pray for difficulty. I know I probably should, but I'm just not there yet. Look back, by the way, about God's character at verse 32. He actually says, if he causes grief, look, he's the cause of the things that are in constant struggle in our hearts and grief in our lives. If he causes grief, he'll also have compassion. He understands, he knows. So, What's our response to that? We take a deep breath. God's sovereign over people. God's sovereign over circumstances. So what? The third question really gives us the practical application. That's in verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over circumstances. Number three, God is serious about our response. He's serious about our response. Why should any living mortal, any man offer up complaint? Now at that point you have to say, well, I can give you a lot of reasons to offer up complaint, God. I'm uncomfortable. Uh, I, I don't want this to happen to my friends, my family, my loved ones. I don't like what's happening. And he, he gives us a footnote that he says, in view of what? In view of your sins, that's the issue. We have to remember that the wages of sin, say it with me, is death. And it seems like most of our life is spent trying to undo that divine principle. You, I hope this is not a shock. You do know that you're going to die, don't you? Is that a surprise? It's not as a fact, but I think it is to our souls. It's like the doctor could come in when we were born, look at our, our parents and say, boy, I, I don't know. I don't, I've, there's nothing I can do. 60, 70, 80 years, that's about it. Your, your kid's dying. Right? It's like uh, that mortician who signs all of his stationery, eventually yours. <laughs> Wages of sin is death. Why can we com- you, uh, offer up complaint in view of our sins? I think we have to go all the way to the end and say, God has, we are going to die because of our sin. We'll, be, we'll live because of Christ beyond that. But we understand that's the end. That the wages of sin is death. And Ecclesiastes says, look, God sometimes gives us good things to enjoy and sometimes we are victims of the curse of the world around us. But we're masters of the curse that's within us in the execution of our own sin. He says, look in your own heart. Really, do you really have anything to complain about One of my favorite Puritans, Horatius Bonner, said this, man's dislike at the sovereignty of God arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Wow. We're suspicious of God. God has said, you're doomed because of your sin, but I've sent my son as the hope. And once you have him, it could be bad or good the rest of your life. It doesn't matter because there is a hope forever in heaven. Man, can you, can you compare forever to now? It's part of what this verse encourages us to do. We should stop complaining. Wow, are we complaining, aren't we? 
How can we offer up complaint in view of our sins? Complaining is a serious affront to God and his sovereignty. Complaining says, God, I know better than you. I know that I'm an expert complainer. I have a patent on several complaints. I mean, I, I can complain about everything. I can complain about the weather. It's too hot, it's too cold. And that can be in the same day in Montana, right? <laughs> or in the same hour, I should say. We complain, we complain. God is good. And though we think we deserve better, we do not deserve better. Stop and... Remember the old Baptist hymn, count your blessings, name them what? One by, some of you know that, good. One by one, count your blessings. See what God has done. We often look at what we don't have rather than what God has done in his providence. He's given us so many blessings to enjoy. Stop and consider. Verse 40 then says, let us examine our ways, examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. In John 19, 11, you find this really coming into focus. Remember Pilate says to Jesus, hey, if you, I can let you go. We can work out a deal here and I can let you go. And Jesus says, actually, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless the father had given it to you. He's really in charge. He was even sovereign over the death of his son. It pleased God, Isaiah 53, to what? To crush him. No telescope can discover an area of the universe where God is not in control and no microscope can discover a part of a molecule, even a cancer cell, where God is not sovereign and in control. Randy Alcorn has a wonderful book on heaven. Uh, I can't improve on his words about perspective. Here's what he says. Earth is an in-between world touched by both heaven and hell. Earth leads directly into heaven or directly into hell, affording a choice between the two. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, I love this, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will ever come to hell. Isn't that good news? But then he says this, for unbelievers, this life is as close as they will ever come to heaven. It's perspective. It's perspective. When Christopher Love was in prison, there's an interesting book written by Don uh, Kistler uh, um, called A Spectacle Unto God where he chronicles love's life and love's death. And when he was in prison, he was given the freedom to write letters back and forth to people, some of which to his wife. Uh, By the way, he was executed um, with two young children and his wife was eight months pregnant with their third child when he was executed. The night before his execution, Mary Love, his wife, wrote him a letter. I want to read that letter to you. It's a few paragraphs long. And it's such a fitting application of what Jeremiah has taught us, that God is sovereign over people, circumstances, and serious about our response. I want you to listen to this letter. Listen to a couple things. Listen to his influence over her. The theology that she's spouting back to him when he's gonna die the next day is amazing. Listen also to how she sees the executioner's axe and sword and who it really comes from. July 14, 1651. It's Old English, 
but I won't try to correct it, and I think you'll find, follow along pretty easily. Before I write a word further, Christopher, I beseech thee, think not that it is thy wife, but a friend that now writes thee. I hope thou hast freely given up thy wife and thy children to God, who has said in Jeremiah 49, 11, leave thy fatherless children, I will preserve them alive and let thy widow trust in me. Thy maker will be my husband and a father to thy children. Oh, that the Lord would keep thee from having one troubled thought for thy family. I desire to freely give thee up into the Father's hands and to not only look upon it as a crown of glory for thee to die for Christ, but as an honor for me that I should have a husband who leaves for Christ. I dare not speak to thee nor have a thought within my own heart of my unspeakable loss. But wholly keep my eye fixed on thy inexpressible and inconceivable gain. Thou leavest but a sinful mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. Thou leavest but children and brothers and sisters to go to the Lord Jesus Christ, thy elder brother. Thou leavest friends on earth to go to the enjoyment of saints and angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in glory. Thou dost but leave earth for heaven and exchange a prison for a palace. And if natural affections should begin to arise, I hope the spirit of grace that's within thee will quell them, knowing that all things here below are but dung and dross in comparison of those that are above I know that thou keepest thine eye fixed on the hope of glory, which makes thy feet trample on the loss of earth. My dear, I know God hath not only prepared glory for thee, but thee for it. And I'm persuaded that he will sweeten the way for thee to come to the enjoyment of it. When thou art putting on thy clothes tomorrow morning, oh, think, I'm putting on my wedding garments to go be everlastingly married to my Redeemer. And when the messenger of death comes to thee, let him not seem dreadful, but look on him as a messenger that brings thee tidings of eternal life. When thou goest up the scaffold, as think as thou saidest to me, that it is but a fiery chariot to take thee up to the Father's house. Then this sentence. And when thou layest down thy precious head to receive thy father's stroke. is that amazing? Remember what thou said to me. Though my head was severed from my body, yet in a moment thy soul should be united to thy head, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And though it may seem something bitter that by the hands of men we are parted a little sooner than otherwise we might have been, yet let us consider that it is the decree and the will of our Father. And it will not be long ere we shall enjoy one another in heaven again. Let us comfort one another with these sayings. Be comforted, my dear heart. It is but a little stroke, and thou shalt be where the weary shall be at rest, where the wicked shall cease from troubling. Remember that thou mayest eat a a dinner with bitter herbs, but thou shalt have a sweet supper tomorrow night with Christ. 
my dear, by what I write to thee. I don't undertake to teach thee, for these comforts I've received from the Lord by you, by thee. I write to you no more, nor trouble thee any further, but to commit thee into the arms of God with whom ere long I shall be. Farewell, my dear. I shall never see thy face more until we, be, till we both behold the face of the Lord Jesus together on that great day. That's perspective. I hope you have that because you believe and embrace that God is control, in control over the people around you, the circumstances you encounter, and he's serious about our response. <clears throat> Father, we want to respond to our difficulties with the theology that Mary Love applied to her own heart. Give us in comfort, give us encouragement, give us perspective that can only come from believing and entrusting Jesus, our Savior and the gospel that saves us. Pray for this precious church, Lord, here in Bozeman, that this city would see and experience men and women, young people, children who have a perspective like this, who are untouched by the things that threaten, the difficulties that cause us stress, discouragement. Turn on our theological perspective to love you more, to display you better, and to enjoy the grace that's ours in Christ. And I want to pray for those people who are in a difficult circumstance right now. Lord, let this text sing your sweet music in their ears. In Jesus' name, amen.